I'm trying to understand and more interested in what you think it was. What was looking back, you being in it, you being so so connected to this um, finding of the symbol and these realizations. I mean, what what do you think it was? That's a great question, man. I I don't know. I mean, I've I guess or I ultimately, ultimately, I don't, I don't know. Um, however, you know, there have been instances where I felt like there was a direct, oh, for lack of a better term, an entity that was like saying hello. There, I've had those experiences where it's like, this is really specific and it seems to be like, waving its hand <laughs> do you know what i mean like there there's something there it feels like it has an intelligence outs it's this is not just a projection of my mind i feel like there's something else there i've had that experience enough times that i can identify those and my short answer would be i don't think this was one of those cases. Um, I or just I didn't get that sense from it. Um, that being said, I, I'm still open to the idea, but this wasn't this. If we're talking with this like ball sort of figure, this is not one that I felt like was jumping up and down saying, "Hey, I'm here." Um, the synchronicities were the synchronicities were, were, were sort of hitting me over the face. Uh, the archetype was seemed really, really relevant, um, and and still does seem really relevant to me. Um, but this this drawing um, this drawing is really interesting to me in the sense that it is so clearly that someone else has identified this archetype i don't think of this as an entity uh here's uh, if i if you allow me i'll give you one example i i think of this almost more mathematically than as an entity so for example uh years ago i had this idea for a comic book i think this is might have been what i wrote about for my first sync book chapter it's like nine years ago but when I was writing a comic book and I had this idea, which, whatever, I don't know how great an idea it was, but basically the idea was, hey, I've been playing with all these concepts around what are we, uh, different, that I had done enough comic book scripting and started to do some more experimental formatting for comic books. Uh, my friend and I would do these, had published a series of things where we had tried some alternative layouts, uh, non-traditional comic layouts and all this sort of stuff. And I was really interested, I was, this is when I was starting to get interested in like graphic design, not so much like a graphic design, like from like an advertising or that kind of technical, but just like the concept, conceptual design layout became so much more interesting to me and I had done a script uh I did a comic that was all about like Scrabble and okay work and I did that whole comic book as a 
uh, a nine panel grid. Um, you, have you read uh, Watchmen? Alan Moore's Watchmen? Uh, I haven't, re- I haven't uh, seen the movie. I know that's gotcha. But I, I, yeah, I haven't read it. Well, just to say, he, he used a specific sort of uh, layout for that, that that he explored. And it's, it's just a nine panel grid. So basically, like, you know, think picture of like a comic strip in a newspaper, right? But it's just so one, two, three. From left to right, one, two, three. And then a second row, one, two, three. And a third row, one, two, three. And that's your nine panels. But what he would do is, oh, maybe on this page, that middle row is is actually one panel. So it's still keeping the same shape, the same layout, but maybe we connect these panels or we connect these two vertical panels or whatever. But the, the grid basically is, is always the layout. And I did a uh, a story about this game of Scrabble that turns into like a philosophical argument, and I used that nine panel grid because hey, I wanted to play with the Scrabble board, and that sort of seemed to speak to me in that way. Anyway, from that idea, these slew of other experiments I had done, I decided I wanted to do something that was just really exploring squares because I would I would at that point I was living. Uh, living, living in New York, and I had this one apartment where I had roof access, and I would sit up on my roof and, you know, think about comic ideas and would look out at the buildings around me, and I would see that, oh, these windows line up in such a way. Like, you know, looking at an apartment building and seeing all the windows, I was like, oh, I could see how, like, each of those is a panel, you know, and we have this figure in this window, and he's saying something, and the figure in the next window over he might be in a totally different story but maybe the their word bubbles can overlap in such a way and and just again all these experimental ideas of what does it mean to be in squares and boxes that i was living in a fucking box you know and you know stacked on top of other boxes and i'm working in a medium that is people in little boxes stacked on other boxes. And I was like, oh, this, I wanted to, so I wanted to explore that and basically tell this story about an apartment building, that there's multiple stories happening in this apartment building, but it's also in itself addressing the idea of what it means to be in a comic book itself. So uh, really exploring the idea. So the the concept, the, the working title for it was just called Squares That Touch. It was never a title I was really particularly fond of, but it was the working title was Squares That Touch. And I think, um, and I think yeah, this is ringing a bell, I believe, because this, this was in your first sync book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So as I'm saying, uh, I vaguely I think, remember this. Yeah, Squares That Touch. Yeah. So the thing for me was at the time that I was doing that, I was not, I, I was still, I had like, studied some conspiracy stuff and you know was like like 9-11 truth and things like that but i hadn't yet gotten into like freemasonry like that area of it right so the reason that's significant is because so i'm doing this whole study on squares and just exploring that purely creatively and what i ended up doing is I make the first like three issues and then I'm 
start uh, hit the point where I'm learning about Freemasonry and all the symbolism around that. And I immediately realize when I'm looking at the tracing boards, the, the first, second, and third degree tracing boards, I'm like, wait, that's, I've already made that artwork. <laughs> so like the, the cover to the first one would have had this, um, it has these like um, sort of like Jacob's Ladder motif. Um, the second cover had this waterfall. Um, and I was in the middle of working on the third one when I, when I found out. So I decided, well, now this is clearly an archetype. I'm going to incorporate the third degree tracing board. I've already made the first two. Now I have to incorporate the third degree into it. And at the, what I have ultimately come away with that experience is to say, I totally unfamiliar with their, the Masonic meditations just by meditating on the basic geographic shape of a square, sort of like took that as like a zip file. I looked at the square and then I unpacked this, this very vivid imagery from it. And then to see that there's a tradition of people who call themselves like on the square, square men, right? That's like all that Masonic stuff is around squares to be on the square. And they have unpacked that same archetype, unzipped it and come up with the same imagery. I don't think that I am... Uh, have been brainwashed by Masons or something, I think, oh, if any, I felt very validated. Like, I independently came up with this imagery while meditating on squares. They're, these guys meditated on squares and came up with the exact same imagery. That's why when I say it's mathematical or like this, it, it, it has this, it doesn't feel like an entity. I don't feel like I, un, I've, I met the Lord of Squares, you know what I mean? Like, uh, I feel like I saw clearly the the complexity that is compressed within that simple geometry. And when I look at this Lion King stuff, and I look at this even ball demon drawing, I think of it in terms of that. It feels mathematical, it feels... Um, like this drawing is is like the square. It is an archetype that can be unpacked, but I don't I, I don't feel like that's uh and again I, I have I have experience where there are I've experienced entities and, and I just I don't I don't that's not what I get from this. To answer your question. That's a long long way of answering your question, but does that make any sense? Yeah, that makes sense. That does make sense. And I think so just to, to get at this, I mean, for me, and I, I was thinking as you, as you told, told this sink and um, I was, and I was, I had asked earlier, what was my last personal sink? Well, I, I remembered a really powerful one and I want to share it, but I think it illustrates um, maybe like what I hear you share your 
your experience there, I, I, I think about like synchronicity in the creation of art and how as you as an artist, again, with your deliberate attention, you, you, you um, dove deeply into a, a concept that, and then you've, and you started uncovering things um, in, you know, that con that concept or that uh, conceptual framework that then other people had seemed to uncover, you know, that, and that's beautiful. I think that's also about creating art. I find that there's definitely um, a way that the synchronicities can help the art unfold. Um, uh, but so I just wanted to say, like, from there's another way that this kind of works for me and I, I think I was alluding to it earlier but just in terms of like the personal decision making and like how my life has unfolded with synchronicities helping me with like not only making decisions but then confirming those decisions in a way that it was less about like an artistic artifact or creation and more about like literally like kind of big, bigger life decisions and I'm sure you've had these too but I'll just share this one um I was, uh, so back in 20, 2009, I was living in Harlem and, um, I was fucked up man. I was really fucked up. I was, I had, I just went through a really dark phase in like the mid to late aughts after the financial crisis. And I mean, I was basically destitute. I was doing so much, so many drugs, man. And, um, was just not in a good way, but I was living and working at a, at a hostel. You're a New Yorker. You might remember this hostel chain called the Jazz Hostels. They were all over the city. Um, I'm not. I'm not too familiar with them, but okay. So it's, yeah, and I think maybe as a local, you weren't. You know, you're lucky. You didn't have to fall into like the hostel hop or like the hostel lifestyle. But you know, I think it was more for like foreigners or people that were just coming to New York to sure, live. Sure. Um, but but so there was this one there was a branch uh, in Harlem and I had a friend that that was had a, got a job there and I was living in Portland at the time and he was just like all right come on down man we'll get you a job we'll get you set up you can work at the hostel and yeah I did you know um, but it was a real you know eight to a room I was living in like a bunk bed with like a guy from Brazil who was dying of cancer, you know, like a 40-year-old out-of-work actor, 18-year-old uh, Russian girls who were there for like a some summer work program scam, you know, it was a real, but we were basically like sardines packed in this tiny room, not getting pay, but we had this room, and that's, and we worked the front desk, and then we had this room to live, and um, anyhow, I met a guy named, I don't want to get too bugged into all the details, but I had met this guy there, this guy had just like partied with that for a few months while he was while he was in New York from Belarus, from Minsk. And um, at the time, you know, no one knows what Belarus or Minsk is really. And you have to say, then you learn when you meet a Belarusian. Are you, you know, basically it's a former Soviet republic, but now it's its own country. Most people just think it's Russia, but they speak Russian there. And this guy and I, you know, we hung out. He was like a close friend. You know, when you're on this basically one level up from the streets, you really have to rely on friendships and connections. And he was kind of a friend that we helped each other survive for a little bit of a, you know, a little period there. And um, so anyhow, I get out of that situation. My life gets a lot better. I, you know, get healthy mentally. And I'm basically, you know, I don't do any drugs now. I haven't for a long time. But 
but that was kind of my nadir in a way that summer. And um, so fast forward to 2018, and we talked a little bit earlier about, you know, leaving America. Um, but I, so this guy's named Anton, he dies in a car accident. And I, I didn't even know it was like maybe 2017, he died. Um, drunk driver or something like that. He was a crazy drunk, so he might have even been the drunk driver. But um, but I'm sitting in Austin, and I'm like, fuck it, I don't want to be here. I was in Thailand, I came back, and I'm like, I'm leaving. And so I was like, where should I go? And I was going to, I did a yoga, I wanted to do a yoga retreat. So I went to this website, like yogaretreat.com. And uh, that that's not it, something like that. And I was like scrolling through, looking for the cheapest one. I was like, oh, Belarus. You know, so there it is, like Anton. So I picked Belarus. Great. So I ended up doing that. I flew to Belarus later that year and went and I lived on like a farm outside of Minsk, about 40, 40 miles outside of Minsk. And um, it was awesome. It's great. I loved living on that farm. I, I turned, I had no computer access for a whole month, man. And this is in summer 2018. I mean, talk about, I feel like I got something back, you know, temporarily. Um, so anyhow, just let me just summarize it here because there's, there's a little bit too many steps. But basically, I end up, I, I left Minsk, but I came back because of a girl I met there. And then I came back to Minsk to visit her, but we just became friends. But I met this other girl uh, um, randomly. And so I end up, for much of 2018 and 2019, I was like going back and forth to Minsk because of this girlfriend that I had. And... Um, and, and, and her name was Karina, Karina. But at one point I was, I had gotten this Airbnb um, and um, it's a beautiful city. It's a lovely, lovely city, but I have this Airbnb and I'm not sure how I, oh, I remembered Lee Harvey Oswald lived in Minsk. That's where he lived when he left America. They, they assigned him to Minsk. And so that's like, and, it, and then I remember there's this whole JFK lore. He's in Minsk. He lives in Minsk. And so I started pulling up the pictures and I found all these blogs about Lee in Minsk. And there's like this whole mythology online. And so I'm in this Airbnb. Then I find the blog post and then there's the picture of Lee. And then there's the apartment and it's the in the building. I mean, I was living in Lee's building. Lee's girlfriend Holy or shit. his wife. Yeah, I mean, not his apartment, but that building. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's, yeah. that's in a, close enough, yeah. Yeah, but so so his name is Lee Harvey Oswald. My middle, my full name, Stephen John Oswaldo Anderson. <laughs> and my girlfriend's Karina. His wife is Marina. And it was like this moment where these kind of sinks that had loosely, I don't even call them sinks, just like I had made decisions based on intuition and past experience and these people that I had met really fly by the seat of the pants. But because of these certain facts brought me stacked in time to where there's this moment where it all hits me. It's like, what the fuck is going on? You know, it's like, clearly there's a resonance here. And, uh, and Lee was from Louisiana, but he died in Texas. I'm from Austin. Um, so like the Texan Oswaldo with Karina. And I mean, it's just, so it's just, you know, I, I say all that because I think this is another example, at least of how synchronicity can work and how it's worked for me is these kind of personal confirmations of the decisions I've made um, and you know, reminding me that, all right, there's kind of like a winking back.
by it. I think it's a god. I think it's some kind of god, like the god maybe, or a god, or what a beneficent god, you know, winking back, saying, all right, we got you. You're making the right decisions. This is pretty cool. Life's a beautiful thing. You know, um, you know, it, it, it's a hopeful thing. But it's these personal, I guess, I've heard it in the sync community. They call it personal sinks, right? Personal sinks. Um, as opposed to like maybe collective sinks or creative or artistic sinks, but um, I just think it's yeah, worth it's, mentioning it, those, those those personal sinks. Oh, there's the personal sinks are the ones that are the one. They're the ones that you you can't ignore, um, and you can't deny that like it's it's personally. Uh, so if if I'm talking about Barack Obama and The Lion King, that's pretty universal. But it's also, it's low stakes for most people. Most people aren't, don't have any emotional investment in that, that man. You, you know, you, you know, even if it's, it's a, it's a powerful person and you might have feelings around it. Yeah, it's not the same as, oh my God, here's my ex-girlfriend or here's this, this lover in this, this summer and here's this, it's just like, all hearing hearing a song that you haven't heard in 10 years and that the the wave of nostalgia or takes you back to that one night with that one person or whatever it might be you know that's uh what's the um uh what was the uh madeline cookies like but basically like the, the smell memory like smell memories are so significant there was the one philosopher made the whole thing about uh he smelled these cookies that he remembered from his childhood. I'm drawing a blank. I don't remember that one. Yeah, um, but <laughs> but basically, like you know, the, it's these things where it's like no one else has. You know, we talk about unzipping the context of a square. A square is this basic, super universal shape that all of humanity has played with for thousands of years. Um, but only you know what that girl meant to you, what that farm, what, how you got there, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, particularly when you tell my son, like a Lee Harvey Oswald, we can say, uh, why was he there? What was, you know, like all, you can only speculate. But when you've made the decisions based on your intuition, based on your synchronicities, based on your emotional feelings for another person, based on all the myriad of, of choices that we make day to day to day, only you carry that full context. And so it's it's personal synchronicities are the ones that truly will do a number on you, you know, or like can make your head spin uh, because you can't deny the significance. We say again, we said meaningful coincidence. Well, for most of us, our lives are the most meaningful things we have. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's, um, and I think that's even the, the um, non-personal sinks, let's call them collective sinks, or I don't know if you have like what, what, what you would describe them as, but like maybe media, like what does Dick Katza use? You know, this is like a media 
his theory is that the media and the collective sinks are like showing us about our true nature or something like this, that it's like all is one and God is love. And, you know, I, I know it. I, I bet you have to... pressed. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to speak for Jake, obviously, <laughs> but I, I think he would probably say that those are one and the same, right? Because he's, he's trying to do that big picture. So um, yeah, that the personal and the collective are they're kind of one and the same. Mm-hmm. I like his, I mean, I'm a fan of that message. I like that he's got a real positive message. So I don't mean to uh, sound dismissive at all. Um, I guess, um, but yeah, I think, I, I just wanted to go back here. I'm just remembering now something Joe said last week. And, um, oh, I had it there and then I just lost it. But it was a point about um, the nature of suffering. And I think I, I think it'll be clear how it's relevant. But, you know, the idea that even being born, just as soon as we're born, right, it's like you have a body that you have to feed or it goes hungry or you die or, you know, there's atrophy and death. And so I think there's something really important about, like, the nature of suffering because it's both a personal phenomenon you know, you, you are going to experience it. I experience it. We're being driven by like a biologically programmed need to, to get food. You know what I'm saying? And, but everybody has the experience, you know? Um, and so it ties us together. Um, and, and I think, I forgot what Joe was saying. At some point he was talking about like getting like local food or it was, I forgot exactly but I wanted to tell him that I wanted to see what he thought about this idea that there is almost no escape is this, is I guess what I'm trying to get at. And, and, and I, and I, um, I mean, I get there's, there's healthier ways to live and like being in a balance and, you know, not being exploited by a machine and I'm all for all of that too. But even in that ideal that we can describe, we still have this problem, the conundrum of the body, the pain that comes with the body and the need to like maintain the body. And that's, there's no fascist regime that can solve that, you know, like that's gonna, um, it will, there's no, I guess, like fighting fascism doesn't solve that, you know, and that's not an excuse for it, but I, I, I'm, I'm just, um, I wanted to bring this in here because I think it can relate maybe to the, to the synchronicity question that, that um, almost like in the personal sync, I think if someone has a really good personal sync and shares that sync, I think we can all appreciate the beauty. There's something there we can relate to, like the fact of the mystery of life or the fact of like the specialness of reality and the kind of um, uh, how deep the rabbit hole goes, like this wonderment for even being alive. I mean, that's a synchronicity, just that I'm awake in the morning looking around it's like fuck you know and a synchronicity just in the sense it's meaningful and it's a coincidence because it happens every fucking morning you know <laughs> i mean so um i'm not sure what I'm getting, yeah. if you get anything out of that i just felt the need to, to to something you said reminded me about this that from last week and i can't and i don't think i'm explicitly linking it to anything but i felt the need to, to share that Oh yeah, I, I appreciate that, and that's and that's just it. Is um, 
that that idea that you know what what how do we want to define synchronicity and how again how do we want to drill down so or you know at the beginning i was talking about oh let's be hyper specific about what we're talking about and really distill the information and and you know just be really fucking selective uh but there's definitely a you know, a, a a place for reaching the opposite, which is that it's all meaningful. Um, it, it's the lang- the language is so fucking hard because, yeah, it's just, the language is so hard because, in one respect, if it's all meaningful, then nothing's meaningful. Blah blah blah. But there is a headspace that is attainable, which is that idea of that the, the personal and the interpersonal are all one and the same, that they're all, ev- that every moment is sacred and that everything is a, a shining synchronicity. And that I don't, I don't want to dismiss that, um, that reality either. So yeah, and it's, it's, it's a, it's a really good reminder to sort of balance those things. Yeah. I, and I, I'm reminded now too. I wanted just to mention you were talking about bikinis. I heard you guys talking about bikinis, and that's something that's been on my radar um, this last week because I've been doing research about a, a certain astrological cycle that that um, it's a strange one. And I'll just tell people because there's some people out there that know this, and it won't take long. But um, it has to do with the lunar nodes, and those are the points in the along the ecliptic where the eclipses happen and so the nodes um it's it's the point and they move there's an 18.6 year cycle where this, these two points and they're directly opposite each other because it's like if you put two circles and but they're not aligned perfectly one's tilted there's only two points where those circles touch right one goes down and under, and then it touches the other one and goes above. If you think about just two kind of like slinkies, uh, or that's probably a bad analogy, but two hula hoops, and then you put one inside the other, there's only they're only touching at two opposite points. And and um, you know these things move through the zodi- zodiacal signs, but um, so uh, today's the fourth, so tomorrow. It's a big deal. The, the the nodes are now leaving Cancer Capricorn and they're entering Gemini Sagittarius. But I'll just read this list. So this is the things that happened when the North Node and the, and there's two nodes, but we identify one as the North and one as the South. And they so when the North Node was in Cancer, this is these are the events that happened. Okay, 1945 Hiroshima Nagasaki nuclear devastation. 18.6 years later, 1963, the JFK assassination. 18 years later, uh, 1982, AIDS epidemic. That's That one's not one event, but that's kind of when it first emerged. It was in 82, I think, is when they first identified it with that name. 18 years later, 2001, the 9-11 attacks. And then 18 years later, 19, 18.6 years later, 2020, the 3-11 coronavirus crisis. Uh, if you want to call it that, some people have been calling it 311 because that's the day Trump 
announced that, or the WHO announced it was a pandemic. They finally admitted it on 3-11. And it's the day that the stock market became a bear market officially because it was down 20%. So I don't think that's going to last. But for a while, people were saying the 3-11, the 3-11. I think it's too prolonged at this point and too large of an event. But I mean, it just shows you these cycles that this this North Node in Cancer, you have the nuclear bombs, JFK, AIDS, 9-11, and now coronavirus. So something's happening here with these nodes, with the, with the nodes and the eclipse points. And it's ancient. I mean, the ancients were all obsessed with these points too. But I was just thinking, because I've been doing research on what the Capricorn, or sorry, the Gemini Sagittarius, when they move into those signs, what has life been like, are their patterns? And one of the things is that that's when the bikini was first announced back in 1947, I believe. I think there were some early versions, but they announced it officially in when the nodes were in North Node in Gemini, uh, South Node in Sagittarius. And then I turned on that show, and you guys are talking about the bikini and the origins of the bikini. So, you know, it's, it's not the... It's, it's something like if I was going to do sync work on that, it's like, all right, you've got my attention, universe. That's how I would approach it. Okay, boom. And I would maybe open up a document and say, all right, there's something here. Let's go to work. Now I would start reading books and articles about the bikini and just staying open for maybe a period of a week or two or three and just seeing what, and then, and then my experience with it is that the universe will then start descending downloads. You know, as I am willing to seek and put in time, all of a sudden I'll be discovering wild connections and strange things. And maybe I would share it with you next week or the week after. And then we would build this kind of lattice work of a, of a real synchronicity, you know, a sync chain that probably has power and meaning, you know what I'm saying? So, um, I don't know, but I, I don't have the expectation that like it's going to happen tonight. I mean, it's, it's almost like I I've been tapped on the head just from paying attention and I don't think I'll do the research or build a sync thread. And maybe it's because I'm lazy. I've got a lot going on. But maybe 10 years ago or something, I might have in a blog post. Um, it's just not quite where I'm at necessarily with it. But I'm certainly going to keep my ears open and see if there's another tap and another tap and another tap, you know. Um, yeah, I think I just, the, the, ones, the ones that really want your attention will get your attention. I, I, I do think there is a... Again, you know, I, I not everything needs to be a, a, a thesis, you know, fucking essay about um, why why bunnies are important or anything. I, I so you know, I I don't want that people don't feel like they have to. I'm not trying to try and, you know say that people have have to make a big production out of everything. Uh, so I'm with you. There are there are plenty of synchronicities where at, you can reach a point where you can acknowledge them kind of let that wash over you you can still contemplate it but you don't necessarily have to turn that into a blog post or anything or do yeah, as you said do the research um i i found a um a flower that i so like uh i'm living in this house uh just about a year now um prob actually probably almost exactly i bet you i moved here may 1st Okay, yeah, so now I'm I'm literally living here a year. But there are these trees around here that I guess bloomed beginning of April. 
and uh, late March, beginning of April. And I loved them. They were so fucking cool. And I'm like, I have to find out what kind of tree this is. And it turns out it's a wisteria. And they were just like, they, they looked really neat and they smelled beautiful. And they were really vibrant for just a few weeks. And then they were, you know, they, they were gone. And I sort of like took some clippings and took some photos and all that sort of stuff. But I really hesitated until just just the other day was finally like, okay, I wonder if there's any significance to this plant. You know, I was like looking it up, um, you know, like a Crowley's 777 table of correspondences. He's got different like plant medicine and perfumes and things like that. And I was like, I wonder if that's listed there. It wasn't. Um, and then I just started researching like symbolism of this plant. And I didn't find much on Wisteria, but um, just to say it was the sort of thing where I was like, I don't really need the experience. Didn't feel like I needed to research the archetype. I was rather enjoying the experience of just letting it happen naturally. I am building a relationship with this plant and appreciation for this plant. I don't really need to know like what it's his, you know, and then there's a time and a place for that. But sometimes just the experience and the beauty of life, not everything has to be a, a science project. It can be, Oh, I, I genuinely really like this, and this—I'm developing a meaning for it right now in my life. Yeah, and I, and I think yeah, that's kind of the um, yeah. I mean, we don't have time. Life's too short to make everything yeah. a science project. I mean, it's it would, we would go crazy. I think, um, but yet you've and there's times when you probably have one going right now at some level or another, right? something that you're maybe researching or I don't know if you're making another video or something and uh, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm working on the uh, my next videos uh, on that 2012 transition so that's why I was like oh I really wanted to zero in there mm-hmm. yeah um, have you thought about yeah and that's you know so I think it's just to, to, to kind of close that point was just is just like I do think that that and that's what I was referring to earlier about like putting, and you were, you said it though, chipping away. Like, I think we have to make space for chipping away at something in our lives, whether that's a think science project or a book or whatever, you know, we've got to, it's important to, to keep chipping away. And I think when we do that, there is um, universe will throw us bones to help us along the way to help us find either the information we need or the, you hear about it a lot, like, I was in the middle of nowhere, and I've been looking for this book. No one has it all over the world, and I walk into a youth bookstore in, you know, some small little town in Thailand. Um, they have, one, like, a small bookshelf of, like, five English books, and there is the one book that I needed. You've heard these stories, I'm sure. I, I can't remember. Like, certain writers will say that. And so, so I mean... Um, but yeah, I want to, let's go back to 2012 because there is something that, you know, that Obama thing where they said Obama got rid of the ban on domestic propaganda. Was that in 2012? 
Uh, do, you, do you know? What, I, don't, I don't know off the top of my head of what year that was. I do know exactly what you're talking about. I don't know what year that was. We could, we would have to look that up, yeah. I'm going to type it in right now because I think that, that so they, that they have a fat claim. Obama did not sign a law allowing propaganda. So they, they, they do say it's in 2012 and it's the NDAA legalizes the use of propaganda. So whatever that was without going into it, um, because I'm sure there's a whole legal debate about exactly what that bill did or didn't do. But let's just assume, or I just think that, yeah, let's just assume, <laughs> maybe it's bad to let's just assume, but assuming that did somehow affect or impact the ability for like the media to get really strange and propagandistic or government funds to go, yeah, the Smith-Munt Act of 1948 nullified it when he passed the NDAA, I guess, 2012-2013. wondering how much um, that would contribute to this kind of fracture, this like fracturing. So not only do we have the medium shifts to like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, but that maybe then there is like um, this, so this government involvement somehow. But what the other thing I think is really important to consider is like the algorithm, the algorithm, like the computer algorithm and its ability to kind of influence, manipulate. Um, and so there might be like a not, I mean, non-human, uh, specifically computer component to that shift. And I don't know, have you have you looked into that at all? Like the when did the bots come online and the um, the so-called algorithm, you know, the scary because <laughs> you hear that a lot today, like, oh well the algorithm didn't like me or the algorithm liked me, you know. Yeah. I mean right, it's taken the that's almost like just fortune, right? Like fortune shines on you or not, right? Good good luck, bad luck. It's 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 cre it's giving that some some other sort of um, ethereal sense. Um, it's really interesting. Um, I don't know. Uh, so, like the question of what year did uh, so algorithms have changed a lot? There is one. Um, note that I thought was interesting uh, this isn't isn't exactly the same but oh it was in 2010 that Netflix streaming surpassed their DVD it's like they but remember they started as like a DVD rental that would mail you a DVD yeah I you remember. know I and <laughs> so Everything and then they would have certain things. I remember, gosh, what year was that? I mean, probably fucking two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Remember getting someone giving me their Netflix password, and I signed in, and it was like, oh, okay, some movies were available online, some you could only get through the mail, and it was this sort of like a really weird hodgepodge of like things seemed very scattered. Anyway. I did uh, something I had researched. There comes a point where they totally like change their business model, where they like, oh shit, like this whole DVDs through mail is not the future. <laughs> you know, online is the future. 
And that didn't happen until 2010 that the streaming surpassed their DVD and their model shifted. That's not what you're asking, but that's just a data point that I have that I think is relevant in here somewhere of like the the transition is as you know you mentioned uh, not having a TV to having the smartphone. I like you. I and I also was very smug for many years. I don't. I don't even have a TV. I won't watch. I don't watch TV. I don't even own a TV. Yeah. I, then I refused to own a phone for so long, and then I finally did, and now it fucking it owns me, right? Yeah. Uh, well, it was. I believe it's two thousand seven. Yeah, the first smartphone, quote unquote, is introduced in two thousand seven. Um, that's the iPhone, and that's the that's, famous Steve Jobs speech where he says, yeah, that's like a famous moment now. Oh, yeah, he really does a thing where he's like, what we have, like, listing all the products. Need a com- Yeah, it's, it's, it's actually, it's, I, I've watched it recently. I watched it again. It's, it's still very powerful. Yeah, I've seen it a few times, too, and I watched it not... Not as recently as you, but like I've definitely come back to it a few times because it feels like that moment is something extremely profound. Seeing how the iPhone and or phones that are just like the iPhone have, have taken over reality. And so like for me, just to, just to say quickly, like if I was going to do a sync thread, if I made it my goal to like, let's say you said we're going to do a sync book three and write a post. SJ, I would, I went, that's like the kind of topic that I would want to pick because of how clearly profound it is for the collective. It's not just some random thing. You know, it's like clearly there, it's meaningful on its face because you don't need to explain why it's meaningful. It's so meaningful because everybody's got it now in their pocket and it took over the reality within a short amount of time. It just colonized everything. So anyhow, go ahead, go ahead. Just, but I just want to say, yeah, it's extremely, extremely profound. Yeah, I mean, a massively profound moment. January 9th, 2007. And then it was released later in the year, June 29th. So it took, it a, took about six months later it actually came out. And it was only a few months after that that um, the, the quote-unquote global financial crisis started as well. But, um I mean, here's something like uh, I just like I was I knew I had some notes on some of this stuff like so um, 3G came out in 2001. Okay. So like it's interesting we get a smartphone in 2007, but we had 3G since 2001. I think that overlap with um, uh, like 9/11 and all that is 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 interesting. Uh, I just decided to Google now. I was like, okay, well then what year was 4G and 4G looks like uh, 2009 uh, standardized during 2011. So right around I'd, that time, actually, I mean, it was like up and running by 2012. That shift we were just describing. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and that has to play a role. Because once you have the iPhone, and then I remember 3G versus 4G was actually a pretty big deal. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like uh. with 4G, and I guess we, I have probably 4G still, I think. But, I mean, 
you know, you can watch videos, you can do Skype, you can, I mean, you can do everything you need. But before that, it was slow, and it was clunky. And so um, the kind of idea that you would have Facebook constantly on your phone scrolling and video loading and the ability to multitask apps and what it has to do with the processor speed. But yeah, I think you're onto something here with 4G and the iPhone both being uh, like laying the groundwork for whatever happened to, to transition into what we where we are now. I mean, yeah, it's just like how much data we can actually obtain. So uh, I'm seeing, quote unquote, official world's first publicly available LTE service was the two Scandinavian capitals, Stockholm and Oslo, on December 14, 2009, was branded as 4G. Um, and then it says, as of November 2012, five publicly available LTE services in the United States. Uh, there is stuff in Hungary in 2011, uh, UK. So, like, but basically, yes, by 2012, pretty much it's 4G is in place. Yeah. And... I'm just thinking you're saying 2009. I mean, that's when Bitcoin came out, 2009. Oh, yeah. yeah. But that came on the radar like in 2012 when it had its its big explosion in that year, 2012. So it's another kind of three-year starts, but then really comes on around that 2012 moment. Um, Let me see. So, yeah, those are, I mean, it's past. Well, so this just goes in and then maybe this is jumping forward a little bit and maybe not necessarily directly on topic. But I mean, whatever anybody wants to say about the the coronavirus crisis or whatever we want to call it, there's clearly like a move toward. So let's set aside all the questions about that. That's just, we, you know, it's just a mess. All right. But I think it's clear there's a move toward like a more technologically omnipresent integrated society way different than 2019. So like 2024, 2019 are going to have some really stark differences in terms of how ever present the technology is, how we use the phones and even like, and I once, I think there's something to be set to be, to be looked at here like if 2012 was a transition and a change and it was subtle it was kind of subtle but i feel like we're in a similar change now and so if we're talking and we're looking back here it's a lesson that i think is highly relevant because it changed the political discourse it fractured the politics um it you know made it to where the attention was was less easily deployed in a deliberate way, like we've been talking about, sort of colonized us through the phones. Like, what's the next phase of this? Do you think it will have as big of an impact on the attention and the nature of, like, how we, um, if so, maybe positive, right, or negative? Or I would say it seems like it's also more about um, changing our movements. So it's more restrictive and, like, and like a, um, it's less about the attention to me, it seems, and it's more about like our physical movements from what I can tell so far. And that might be a good thing. I mean, it's not a good thing, but at least it's not like a chip in our brains yet. I don't think that's coming from coronavirus where you literally can't ever turn it off or something like that. At least now I can still leave my phone in my apartment and go for a walk. 
Right, um, right, right. But can you speak to that, or what's your sense about it? Because, I mean, are we on a cusp? Do you have any sense of where it might be heading along these lines of like technology being laid to set the ground? I, I wouldn't dare speculate on like a timeline. I, I think it's, it's, it's clear to me that things are done in ratchet strokes, right? Um, there are moments where it, it's like you uh, mixed mix metaphors here. Like there's the whole like boiling frog, uh, uh, you know, phrasing. So it has to be done slow enough that like it's it's constantly being done slowly but surely. Where the, the environment is changing, and it's but it's done slow enough that we don't notice that it's that it's boiling under most circumstances. And then we have these little spikes of where the the ratchet is really turned and 9-11 is one where it's like okay now suddenly we really want to you know we're going to institute a patriot act and department of homeland security and all these sorts of things right um so coronavirus yeah i don't think is where the the microchip comes from but i mean but just the fact that we saw that get floated just the fact that that's like literally, you know, week two response from major media outlets is like, well, maybe we'll just put a microchip in everybody and we'll know who has the virus. You know, like that that's that's scary. That's fucking scary that they the the intention the desire for that uh certain high profile folks to really make that our future is uh it's very apparent um you know so i uh think, go ahead go ahead so, so yeah i mean like so do you think that and i don't even mean to get like paranoid at all i'm more interested in this from more like a meta perspective certainly i mean we could drill down and get like oh they're taking you know like matrix and we're going to be locked in. I mean, I'm interested in that conversation, that conversation too, but I think I don't necessarily want to like force that conversation here, but I'm more of just like, uh, it's so stark how the way we talked and the way we experienced reality changed after that, that 20, 2012 and, and including all the things we just laid out here, the groundwork that was set. And then there was like this palpable shift over looking back. It's like, wow, that was really different how how this technology um how i interfaced with it and how it changed like the quality of my attention everything we've been talking about and so i'm more just kind of interested from that perspective because like i i think 5g the the date is 2020 is what they've been saying for a few years now and setting aside any kind of 5g zapping you or anything but just that that they would pick that date that just seems significant to me Absolutely, and then and I'm realizing now that it's sort of like a ten year cycle. So if we had three G in two thousand one, and then four G roughly two thousand ten, uh, and then you know, roughly speaking, and then and now twenty twenty. So it's it's basically like a ten year upgrade, right? Uh, that's that's interesting in of itself. Um. Okay, if we want to talk not so much like a technological control grid or um, 
you know, 5G zapping. Just, t- just talk. I'll go about- there if you want, Alan. No, no, not necessarily. Not necessarily. And I mean, we've we've done it. And uh, just just to, real, really quick to say, uh, I'm gonna have to go in about 20 minutes. So that's still okay. plenty of time to chat. But just to give you a sort of, maybe we'll keep this to the to the things we really want to drill down on. Yeah, perfect. Um, is to say, to answer your question, I do have one thought that I've been thinking for the last year or so, and I think I talked to Jordan Barty about this uh, on Always Record, so if anyone's heard this, I apologize, but um, basically, I had this realization that, I, I so I do a lot of, you know, uh, for, for the last 10 years, a lot of what I'm doing with Sync is working with video work that is, you know, oh, you want to talk about a synchromistic type video, it usually has footage from some other movie or something in it, right? Then you yeah. upload that to YouTube, and now do you get, does your video get flagged as copyright protection? Does it get pulled down? Do they do they put advertisements on it? Do you get penalized? Like, there have been the 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 consequences and the way in which these mega corporations are handling copyright law is constantly shifting and so that that conversation is one that i am incredibly interested in uh and it, it which and directly impacts my creative output um but i had this realization that now I've been watching, when we talk about algorithms, I've been watching at how that technology has advanced. And it used to be you could upload something and maybe you wouldn't get flagged for a few weeks because they might have bots that are sort of scanning through this data at whatever pace and they might not get to you right away. So Vision the Voice, as an example, I released that video two years ago and it made it survived on YouTube for about two to three days before it got yanked down. Um, that's two years ago. That's two yeah. years ago. Yeah, uh, made it about two three days. I mean, now I upload things, and and that's honestly even before that, there are certain things where like I've. God, I remember it was something, I didn't even, it wasn't even a public video. I was just trying to, I was working on something and I wanted to show it to Andras. This would have been 2014. I remember uploading a video to YouTube and I literally watched like the progress bar of uploading, uploading, uploading. And it was like 99, 100, and then within 20 seconds, it said flagged for copyright. That was like 2014. And that was just like somehow it picked up this one song. But so now with, with the music, you, again, this all goes to how the algorithms work, is that the music, they can see, they're like little, probably looking at your waveforms and you're just scanning the waveform for recognized data matches. And with the music, it's probably really easy to pinpoint and go, oh, this waveform is one that's already in our database, right? You can hear this song. This song has this very specific shape to it. It matches, boom, 
that's a that's a data match. Uh, so that's why like there are there are ways around this. I have taken to like slowing down music or or pitch shifting uh, with videos. There's ways to like you do like a weird cropping of it or put a filter over it. All these things to throw this technology off. But the technology is constantly finding ways to get better at what what is ultimately what are we teaching this copyright protection to do is to recognize patterns within media right like just objectively speaking that's what we are training this thing to do mm -hmm. now um we also know i i interviewed mark hostler he's um one of the guys from Negative Land, they are the ones responsible for most of the fair use legislation uh, in the United States. I remember that. I, I listened to that interview, yeah. I remember that. It's ringing a bell now, yeah. I interviewed him, it was pretty shortly after, so Joe Alexander had his uh, Back to the Future Predicts 9-11 thing, was 2015. So in 2015, Joe does his thing. He, I don't think that he ever really got hit with anything for copyright. Obviously, he's using clips of Back to the Future, but notice he like desaturated it. He, there are different things he yeah. did to change change that, right? There's anyway, can do. yeah, there's, there are there are there are tricks you can do, but sometimes it's just like, are you lucky or not? Again, it's like, did the algorithm favor you? I have things where it's like this most recent video I put up. I got flagged. They're like, hey, we noticed you use this music. But they're not taking the video down. They're just like, we, just so you know, we know you used it. I'm like, uh, okay. <laughs> Th thanks for not taking the video down, I guess. Um, but then there's other things where they're like, hey, we, we recognize that you used this, and now your video is gone forever. Anyway, Joe Alexander does his thing in 2015. That, uh, what ends up happening is that it goes crazy. There's all these different articles about it. But uh, Comedy Central, I don't remember the show's called, like, At Midnight. I had no idea what this show was. I had never heard of it before. But this guy had a TV show on Comedy Central, and he devotes, like, a good 10 minutes of his show to talking about Joe's video. And it's really interesting because throughout it, he is showing on his screen the YouTube page. And if you look, it basically says copyright YouTube. So Comedy Central is not paying for the rights to show Back to the Future. They're saying, hey, we are in like, kind of like a news program and we are showing something that belongs to YouTube because it's on YouTube. That's not, you know, Warner Brother. I don't know. I really don't know who, who owns maybe Universal. I don't know who owns Back to the Future. But they're not crediting them. Comedy Central is crediting YouTube and saying, well, we don't have to pay for that because that's just some free YouTube channel. <laughs> right? So they have played their sort of shell game, copyright shell game. But they literally devote 10 minutes and play a ton of footage from Joe's videos. They're not paying Joe. They're not, you know, like they're just, just playing it on TV, his content. Because and, and I have no issue with that. I'm just 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 want to be clear though. 
so the show game goes that Joe is using footage from Back to the Future. Comedy Central is using footage from Joe and Back to the Future. And then I made a video talking about the Comedy Central bit. So I'm using footage of Comedy Central, using footage of Joe, using footage of Back to the Future. I got hit with a copyright thing from Comedy Central that they are claiming that's their protected content. It's like, bitch, you're fucking three steps out. Yeah. Right? <laughs> like, fuck you. Yeah, um, yeah they, sh- they should be paying Joe. If they want to do that, <laughs> then Joe should be able to copyright them for his creative work. Right? He did a remix. Yeah, he did a remix and had a unique art uh, artwork that then they used for that um, well, it just goes to show. So there's there's no there's no logic. There's no. But you know the the question could also be that that's just an algorithm, right? Like that's there's no arguing with the algor- The algorithm just literally they picked it up, which is crazy because how are they not picking up Joe's thing? Again, you know, I'm sure they got the lawyers or whatever. Anyway, I brought this up to Mark Hosler and I said, "Hey, man." What do you think of this situation where you're all about fair use? What this I gave him this example and things like that, and talking about these algorithms. And he said that he has actually met with, as part of his fair use advocacy, he has met with multiple executives from YouTube. And in uh, a meeting that he had with them, he said, he asked flat out, how is it that you are able to have these automatic algorithm matches with all this media that if someone uploads something, he's like, it would seem as if, like, you must have a database of, like, this li- massive library of, of, every- of everything. And the YouTube executives told him, yes, all the movie companies, all the record labels, they send us their content to upload into our databases so that we can have a comparison. So that means there is a secret library of every fucking movie, every fucking song, basically every TV show, whatever audiovisual content that humanity has produced in the last hundred years... YouTube is trying to create a database of that. And they are taking that secret database, and the only one who is watching this fucking library of Alexandria of all human media from the last hundred years are artificial intelligences. Algorithm, yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. So we are showing, we are training and teaching artificial intelligence to say, hey, this is the sum of human creative output. Watch it, assess it, and look for patterns within it. Yep. And there's a part of me that remains really fucking hopeful is that isn't that just going to make the future of artificial – aren't they just going to be like basically synchro mystics? <laughs> <laughs> right? Like you're watching all this like – uh, raw fucking id's 
and emotion and and looking for patterns in it and I, I don't know. I, I feel like there is a chance. There is. I, I, I retain a sliver of hope that I know what happens when people do that. I know what kind of intelligence that creates. Yeah, I, it's, it's amazing because um, I don't know if you've seen some of this. This is like old technology now, but they gave the like they did the race cars they put the nodes on a bunch of different race cars on a you know like let's say it was a um indy car i don't i can't remember exactly what it was but they then put all the data into the ai chassis designer and the the design that the ai spit out for the next chassis was like this tripped out nothing you've ever seen before design but it was like the perfect design to maximize everything you need for a race car. And so, and I saw another one that was like, they gave it flying data and then what it spit out, it's really strange looking, but it mimics like a squirrel skeleton, a flying squirrel skeleton or something like this. So, um, yeah, I think that's one of the most optimistic sides of AI is like all the connections that it can make that we simply just can't see and that what it spits out from that is going to be like some pretty tripped out, profound, beautiful, um, you know, output. Uh, absolutely. Um, one thing, other thing, I just want to say. Now we got about seven minutes, but I wanted to throw in here. You mentioned. Um, you mentioned um, the Patriot Act earlier. And just this is something else that's been on. I, I talked about the, and I, this is somewhat unrelated, but I just want to throw it in here for the purpose of having it on the record. And um, I talked about the node shifting into Gemini, the North True node into Gemini. And let me just list you the things that have happened in in the last seventy years during this period. And this is about an eighteen month period. And this and this will give me it gives you a flavor of some of the things I'm looking for over the next eighteen months. But uh, 1946, UN Security Council holds first session. 47, Churchill says Iron Curtain in Missouri, in a speech in Missouri. 47, the Truman Doctrine is proclaimed. That's fighting communism. 47, National Security Act is signed, which creates CIA. Okay, so that's all from in the 40s period. The 60s, 65 is when the National Security Council massively expands the bombing of Vietnam and then the um, Phoenix program started in 65. That's a torture and detention program in, in Vietnam. They say it's the origin of the later torture and detention programs. Um, 80s, that's when you have the strategic defense initiative. So it's like a big expansion of the military industrial complex because that was a payout to them. It basically did nothing. But then you start getting to 2001, 2002, 2003, Patriot Act. Military tribunals against enemy combatants. Bush signed that executive order in 2001. Homeland Security Act, which was the biggest expansion since that uh, act um, in 47. CIA begins operating black sites. And then you have the war in Iraq. So I just wanted to throw this out here. And I, I know I said, let's not get dark. But I do think we're looking at a period that um, where we could see some of like the expansion and, and it is relates to AI at a certain point because I do think that the AI is being used in conjunction with 
some of the government, let's say, military industrial or national security state is a better term. Um, so I didn't want to leave the call. I mean, enough of this had already come up that I wanted to be sure to drop this in here, that I think that there is going to be some national security state reorg, and it will definitely include some of this, some of this AI technocratic stuff um, that, that is, that is going to be put in play here. Um, one other final note is like, it also reminds me of these art, this art, because facial recognition is a big part of this complex and it gets fed into the AIs. But there's been some really beautiful art done in the last two years by AI painters um, dealing with like, they'll feed it all of the paintings in human history. And then they'll say like, okay, spit out a portrait and they make it's like, it'll make these really strange looking portraits that are beautiful. I mean, they're really beautiful. On the one hand, it's like detestable. It's like, ugh, really? I'm, we're going to worship this shit now. And on the other hand, it's like, wow, this is a, this is actually, there's something beautiful here, you know. So I'm kind of my the jury for me is still out in terms of like, can AI really do it better than nature? And I want to say no, I don't think so. But at the same time, it can do some pretty powerful shit and. Um, you know, I don't know where I just heard these songs like they did the Katy Perry song, the Elvis song. This just came out this week and I listened to them and it just is like, yeah, it did pretty good. But this is trash, man. This fucking sucks. What do you, I don't know. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know what you're talking about. The Katy Perry okay. Elvis song. OK, so the, the AI artist, they just released songs. This is like an announcement this week. Like this is the cutting edge AI for the AI songwriter. And they released they released a subset of the pr pr uh, production of this AI songwriter. And they said, here's the song that we gave it, like every Elvis song. This is the Elvis song it produced. Ah, uh, okay, gotcha. This okay. Is, and, and you play it, and it's like, yeah, it's impressive. It sounds kind of like it. It's creative. It's cohesive. But it still sounds like just trash. Like, it's, it, it's not human. It's not human. You can tell there's that human element that's mm. gone. And um, do you remember yeah. uh, in I'm sorry, when, when I when I think the dark aspect of this, I think of um, in 1984, they make reference to the uh, novel writing machines. Oh, that's right. I had forgotten about that. Wow. And uh, yeah, that that that's something that's sort of always in the back of my mind is like, again, if you want to look at it from this very dark perspective it's the soulless you know just we've totally stripped the heart from any of our artwork we don't need artists we just the machines will produce enough entertainment to keep you busy and distracted um but my my experience and i and i know i you know maybe i I'm someone more invested in the arts than the average citizen, but I don't know, man. I feel like the the human spirit in that sense, I don't think can be destroyed. Um, the creative spirit. Like, we've done some fucked up things throughout history. We've had, like, you know, times of genocides and horrible plagues and wars and 
famines and all this sort of shit. I don't I don't think that there is a way to actually stamp out that desire from humanity. Um, if anything, what has the last 20 years shown us is that with access to technology, everyone is, ma- you know, look at quarantine. Everyone's like, oh, I'll, make, I'll start a podcast or I'll, here's my artwork or here's a DJ set from my bedroom or here's me playing guitar on Facebook Live, you know, whatever, right? Um, even in the face of, and I don't know, again, this is a, a much tamer apocalypse than, than others have lived through. Um, but my, my point is that as this technology has grown, everybody has gravitated to using that technology in ways that furthers artwork creation. So even if you're someone who has very little you know, graphic skills, you could still make some meme a very basic image and text combination that can be socially viable. Like probably more people saw some teenager shitty meme than they're going to see the most, you know, we could have a, the great, you're talking about an uh, AI painter. We could have the, the greatest human painter alive today could make a fucking masterpiece tomorrow and probably less people would see that than would see some teenager's meme that he made in 30 seconds, right? Um, so there's something for quality and quantity and all that sort of shit. But to say, like, I can, I have access with my very limited budget and resources. I can make pretty good fucking videos on my home computer, you know, um, uh, the point of my sort of point of doing the 2020 series is to emphasize like loose change, um, zeitgeist. Even now, I, I don't, I don't, can't really talk to this new out of the shadows. The shadows video or whatever. Yeah. Um, but like <laughs> these, this sort of trend of like these independent conspiracy films and all that sort of stuff, like these are only possible in an age where we have access to all this technology. Um, you know, if we talk about Hollywood control and, and or CIA control and all these sorts of things, well, what happens when you give 300 million Americans the power to create videos in their own home and then say, hey, take two months off from work? I don't, you know... Are people too traumatized to create work right now, or do we see some sort of weird resurgence of people reconnecting with their, you know, their passions? Um, There are parts, there are aspects of this that I remain very hopeful for. Ultimately, what life has shown me is it's all very much a mixed bag. There is no like, oh, now we live in Nazi Germany and no one paints anymore. (laughs) Like, there, there will never be that time. Even in Nazi Germany, people still painted. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I just, I don't see, I don't see the technology being able to stamp out 
the creative spirit of, of humanity. Uh, that being said, it can certainly, as you and I have experienced in the last few years, we can certainly add uh, a lot of distractions and obstacles and energy-sucking devices, and we can drain the the energy and the incentive out of things. And we certainly there's it's not a good landscape for, hey, create this. You know, I I know 50 people that are in bands that maybe get, you know, some some play amongst their friends. But, like, there's a million bands on Spotify. How many of those people are surviving or thriving off that? Not many, right? Um, mm-hmm. we've, we've stripped the incentive, but people are still creating because it's what we want to do. Um... I think it'd be very hard to get rid of that. Yeah, I agree, and maybe that's a good place to. I mean, we, you know, we can we can go on and on here. I mean, I get, but I think that's a, probably a good place to. We're about four minutes over, so. Um, Hell yeah! And I know it's probably not a hard deadline, but I mean, I think that is a good ending there, just to 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 end on this idea that the creative human spirit is is something that we, you know, it's still here and it's probably going to still be here um so it's it's a message of hope there i guess until the rna dna experimental vaccines take out that part of the brain which is coming and i'm just i'm just kidding i'm just, <laughs> I'm just, I'm just, kidding. just kidding yeah um, i mean yeah I said, anything's possible i suppose but um my, my everything in my experience just shows me that um there are like if we boil down what does it mean to be human um i think a lot of these things are just so innate just so such a part of who we are absolutely yeah absolutely. but thank you man uh, i'm really glad i got to chat with you today yeah likewise alan I'm, I'm really happy too and you know maybe we'll get some it's nice to have a. uh, uh Maybe a one a one on one like this. I think there's we can cover a lot of ground. Uh, I, I like a big call too, but maybe next week there'll be some more guys that are free, so we can get some more thoughts in here. Uh, yeah, I mean, exactly. I, I I think there's a time and a place for both, and um, yeah, this this was really enjoyable uh, just to actually um, really engaged with you in that way. So I, I always I always enjoy talking to you, man, and I hope you have a great day. And uh, whatever, we'll, we'll try again next week or so, and if whoever's around, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to keep just checking in, and if we connect, we connect. But uh, right. Yeah, we'll see what happens, and yeah, I'll be in touch uh, uh, somehow, some way, so... Yeah, likewise, man. Real pleasure to chat with you, and good. And you know, uh, look for that uh, 2020. I guess that's a video that might be out over the next couple of weeks or months. Oh, oh, uh, oh! Episode, yeah. That that'll take me at least some a month. I mean, I'm, uh, yeah. Just, just if you haven't seen it, um, you can go to thesyncbook.com. I'm trying to syncbook.com slash 2020. I've got three episodes up so far. Um. I'm work been working on the fourth one, but I'm it's I'm not ready for that. So um, I, I, I I'm, I'm still in the scripting stages. So 
Are they on uh, YouTube as well, or is it only on the SyncBooks website? Uh, they're on YouTube. They're on YouTube. Um, I believe. Um, yeah, I got to see a playlist. Wow. But... I check out episode three uh, tomorrow. I'm gonna catch up on all these. These I love that tagline. We are all struggling to make sense of the world in 2020. Can we learn? Uh, what can we learn by realizing that our current moment was explicitly foreshadowed by one weekend <laughs> in 2011? That's a provocative tagline, man. Wow, can't wait to check that out. Cool. Yeah, I just dropped you the uh, YouTube playlist. If that's easier. Cool. Yeah, I'll, I'll check about that. This would be this would be that's awesome, man. I'm excited. Um, and then you got coming soon. Okay, episode four and episode five. Okay, wonderful. Hey, man. All thank right. you so damn much. Have a great day. I'll talk to you probably next week. All right. Okay. All right, peace on. Bye bye. Okay.